Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Green Chef. Feel like the star of your own cooking show with Green Chef Meal Kits. Green Chef is a meal kit company that delivers everything you need to cook gourmet meals at home, including organic ingredients and easy recipes. Plus, they are USDA certified organic, and they offer options for specialty diets like vegan, paleo, gluten-free, and more. Sign up today for a special limited-time offer. Go to greenchef.us slash watch for $50 off your first meal kit. That's greenchef.us slash W A T C H for $50 off. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Brightly Burning, Alexa Dunn's lush and enthralling reimagining of the classic Jane Eyre set among the stars will seduce and beguile you. Read Brightly Burning. Entertainment Weekly calls it one of the most anticipated YA debuts of 2018. Brightly Burning is a gripping examination of class, romance, and survival set in a dystopian future that feels chillingly relevant to our present times, according to Kirkus Reviews. Brightly Burning by Alexa Dunn, available wherever books are sold. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he's investigating some stuff, okay? It's Andy Greenwald! Boy, you know, we were excited for this Thursday show. We already had a lot of stuff planned. Yeah. We were going to talk about last night's season premiere of uh, Handmaid's Tale Season 2. Yep. We were going to talk about Marvel's Avengers Infinity War opening tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and we have an interview with Churches. Yes. Our good friends, the Scottish band, their third album is coming out in just a few short weeks. But last night, something, some, <laughs> well, something else happened. Today, we're recording this on a Tuesday. Oh, Monday I, I, yeah. night. My, my timeline's a little screwy. Yeah, Monday night was the, the Venom trailer came out. I only assume that by the time you're hearing this, museum exhibitions have opened. <laughs> so we'll get to that in just a second. I just want to say on the ringer.com, there's so much good stuff to read. Our NFL draft coverage is amazing. Our NBA playoffs coverage is amazing. And we'll have stuff on Infinity Wars all week. We will be talking about Avengers Infinity Wars on Monday. Mm-hmm. It's just one war, man. Yeah. You it's keep just, saying it's Infinity Wars. But then if it if it's goes on forever... There so are, it's just one war there that are goes many forever. battles and skirmishes within the war. I got you. I got you. You see what I mean? No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that on Monday. <laughs> uh, you can listen to Recapable's Westworld if you yeah. want to get your dose of podcasting stuff about Westworld. <laughs> and, well, you should listen to the podcast. I, I'm happy it's there. You're it's, happy it's there. Did it's you listen servicey. to me talk about it? I, I did on our show. <laughs> I have to do it again. Um, and then we will be talking today about Handmaid's Tale, yeah. like I said. Um, but first, we got to talk about this Venom trailer. <laughs> Yo. Can you... All right, I want to talk about how Tom Hardy straight up just CGI'd his own performance from the drop and put it in this movie, but yeah. can you give me like the 20-second, 30-second recap on what Venom is? Because I have no idea. And here's the thing. You have to understand that to make something this gloriously stupid, you have to start with a kernel of pure, uncut stupidity. Sim- like a symbiote Almost. stupidity. Yeah. And. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say this, and it's, I feel liberated telling people this. <laughs> Thank you for asking me this. I've carried the knowledge of this nonsense in my head for 20 years. Chris, <laughs> in the 1980s, Marvel had a, a large comic book event called Secret Wars, where all their heroes teamed up and fought each other. And uh, that became a thing that they did in the movies yeah. 20 years later. And while they were on this other planet fighting each other, Spider-Man 
found a little thing that crawled onto his body and became his new costume because everything was starting to rebrand as edgy and dark and Spider-Man oh, had a yeah, black yeah, costume yeah, yeah. that was like alive and bond- bonded with him. He didn't have to get dressed anymore. It sort of it's like lurked up his body. It's good stuff. Um, I think Mac Weldon offers the same product. <laughs> it's antimicrobial. Uh, it's antimicrobial. Um, and then he had a black costume for a while and then people were like, now nah, we want the red costume back. And then people were like, cool, what if the black costume was an evil costume? And... That's Venom. Okay. An evil alien Spider-Man costume that glommed onto somebody else. So is the the end point here is that eventually Venom will be in a Spider-Man movie. I, I honestly, I look at this and I don't know what the end point is other than these are end times. Because it was supposed to be a Sinister Six. What, that was before thing? Marvel got involved? It, like This is the kind of thing where Sony was throwing every wet noodle they had at the wall to try to make one of the properties they controlled pop off. And... All of these things were in development. And this literally seems like Tom Hardy was like, okay. And then they were like, oh, you were, you were serious about that? Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make a movie, sure. I'm glad you brought up you were serious about that voice because there's a lot to take from this Venom trailer. It's directed by Ruben Fleischer, who did uh, Zombieland, a movie I'm very fond mm-hmm, of. Me too. Uh, it's co-stars uh, Riz Ahmed. It's a wild cast. Guy, guy we really enjoy. Jenny Slate, a woman we really enjoy. Michelle Williams. A queen. Yeah. And Tom Hardy. And Tom Hardy is, uh, if you put Tom Hardy in any kind of role where he is acting, <laughs> first he's going to be like, where's the mask? Yeah. He gets it. He, yeah. got, he got his mask yeah. in Venom. Sure. Second, he's going to be like, what's my accent? Mm-hmm. And he's chosen to do a kind of Ratso Rizzo mm-hmm. meets what? Like Mark Ruffalo and Spotlight kind of? I told you I'm going to do my job. I'm a reporter. I follow people that do not want to be followed. What about the allegations that you recruit the most vulnerable for tests that end up killing people? Your time to go. finished, Mr. Braun. Is that a threat? You had to learn how to hide in plain sight. I'm pretty good at it. But you, you suck. Whoever you are. This is a, the accent of a guy who learned about the existence of New York City by watching old episodes of Welcome Back Cotter on an eight-inch black-and-white television. Yeah. yeah. This is so wild. And the thing is, why did we not see this coming? Like, as soon as we saw that he was doing this, we have to remember but we're I talking about Tom the, Hardy. I thought in the first teaser, like, he was, like, a construction worker yeah. who got captured because he, like, he— I, I don't know why. Ah, man. But he's a journalist yeah. who is investigating this company that mm-hmm. Riz Ahmed has— and as soon as he starts talking, I mean, this has been sort of my pet peeve for a long time, is that I think Tom Hardy is one of, like, the best working actors. Sure. But Tom Hardy always has something in front of his mouth. He's the hardest working working yeah, actor. Yeah, he definitely always gives himself, like, two or three hurdles to it's jump a challenge over. Yeah. He needs a challenge. And now he's in this movie, and he's like, oh, <laughs> what are you doing here, huh? I work for the New York Post. I got a taxi medallion right here. I got your cup of coffee. And and then the arc of this is that he becomes a dark Spider-Man yeah. with a big tongue in a universe where Spider-Man may or may not exist. And another voice in his head that he gets to talk yeah. to on the side, like so on the street. This just seems like a thing where they were pitching oh, him. Oh, I was born in the darkness. What are you talking about? He's like, look, you get to do two voices. Okay, all right. He's like, and you get to ride a motorcycle. He's like, oh, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Bing, bang, boom. Maybe you saw me in the Bane movie. Oh, I had the fur coat. <laughs> really? I can get you one of those. You know, there are times since I moved to Los Angeles where I really miss 
the mean streets of NYC. And then there are times when I hear Tom Hardy doing this accent as a journalist <laughs> in the Sony film Venom. And I'm like, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm fine here. This... Oh, you see me? I'm flying over the English Channel. <laughs> is that, is that you know what I mean? Time is a construct. What are you talking about? Is that Venom in Dunkirk <laughs> yes. and in um, another Christopher Nolan movie? <laughs> Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. Oh, sure. I see. Yeah, I see. That's good. You're, you're doing some. You're doing some symbiote work yourself with the cannon. I get Shout it. Shout out to Jenny. Get that money, Jenny Slate. It's great. I mean, but all of them, they were like, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sure. So you're in or out on this wild out but super in on covering every <laughs> detail that leaks from this between from now and until the I can't, movie comes I'll be out. there on opening night um all right before we get to this interview with churches yeah let's talk about handmade season two yeah came back last night yeah the first season uh it's on hulu obviously elizabeth moss uh lauded uh mm -hmm. series um award-winning series yes it was and i think here's my impression uh -huh. there was a huge amount of um Interest in the first few episodes of this show, mm -hmm. and then it kind of leveled off a little. Are you bit. using I statements here? I I would say that that is like that in in the in terms of the ringer water cooler. Okay, that there are a couple people who are like, man, the whole first season was great, but then there are a few people who are like, I had to, I punched out after yep. like three or four. Um, the first season ends where Margaret Atwood's book ends, mm -hmm. so we are now in the sort of Game Game of Thrones season six seven area of like we're going into uncharted territory. There's still a lot of material from the Margaret Atwood book that could be used, especially the stuff about the colonies where they send. Look at um, you! I did a little research. Look at you, an Atwood scholar. I did a little research. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to do that every time. Um, I read this. I read a piece that James Poniewozik wrote yeah. in the Times about this, and I think it's actually. Uh, did as good a job summing up my feelings about this as mm -hmm. I could like just re repackage my own, which is basically comparing this to The Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. That it's an incredibly interesting idea mm -hmm. that is, as it goes on, and especially in this first episode of the second season, it's incredibly challenging to imagine myself wanting to keep watching the yes. show. Because it is, it is what you are signing up for, for... I think what is this? Is it it's like a? It was like a full fifty-seven minutes. It's a long one. It's just a really, really, really tough hang, man. And I, I, I understand. Like we can talk all about the, um, the echoes of our current political, socio-political climate that exist. And I do think that the show is going to get more into how, um, how like the world in Handmaid's Tale came to be. Yeah. Uh, they they've been doing these flashbacks to June Osborne's life before before this coup but um yeah I, I it's just it's brutal it's a brutal show and it's it's a, a show that I feel like really 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 squeezes as much as it can out of its most wrenching moments mm -hmm. and it's it was just a tough tough hang for me this is a tough show to discuss because I agree with you um I don't think I I'm going to continue much further with the show, um, but I want to add some important caveats to that. I think the show is incredibly admirable. I think it is incredibly well made. I think that it seems to be, um, from my vantage point, hitting its targets. It is accomplishing. It is. They are making the show they want to make. And I think anytime you can see that, you can see that continuity of vision and performance and production design and direction and execution, that should be commended. That's very, very hard to do. Uh, I think Elizabeth Moss is a goddess, and I think she's one of the great performers of our time. Um, and again, the show knows what how to use her um, to maximum effect and her face, the things that she can do without without speaking. 
Um, and I think that the show should be lauded for the way that it steers into some very uncomfortable skids um, that certainly echo our moment in ways that are just, frankly, intolerable for me to sit through. Um, I think there are moments, I think the Walking Dead analogy is a really good one for two reasons. One, um, after watching the season premiere, there were moments when I just basically felt enough. I mean, it, it is, there's, there's, a, there's a, a version of this where I look at it and I feel like it's misery porn. It is. Yeah, I think honestly, the opening sequence, and this yeah. is a spoiler if you haven't watched the first episode of the second season, but the sequence at Fenway Park yes. made me feel like I was watching Hostel. Yes, I couldn't watch this, yeah. and um, but I but I I'm glad you brought up that sequence because that speaks and to the other point like I want to make. The stuff that comes after it is that much lighter. No, <laughs> well, I mean, it, when the woman is chained to a stove and has her hand burned, yeah. that's that's lighter, right? <laughs> no, I mean, no, it's it, you can't make jokes about yeah, the show, yeah, nor yeah. should you try. Um, the 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 reason the thing about that sequence that I wanted to to go back to, and the the larger point about The Walking Dead is that. They are, these shows are very representative of the moment we are in in television as um, through financial circumstance and the opportunity provided by streaming services and the voraciousness of the audience. And I would say to a large degree, the adventurousness of certain segments of the TV watching audience. We are seeing TV shows that reject a lot of fundamental things about TV, basically saying that we can take um, emotions or attitudes, visions that generally only exist in movies, and we can apply them to television. Not, and I would, I mean, but, in a very, in a very like a, a, a small amount of movies. Like well, this is not like a, a kind of vibe you see in any old movie. And the reason they those exist in movies and in not many movies is because there is a limited appetite for some of yes. these things. Yes, because a movie can transport you to a world for two hours and then leaves you shaking and gasping and stumbling out of the theater. Um, rocked by where you've been, but ready to um, take that experience and slot it into your own experience in the world yeah. and reckon with it. These shows are attempting to make serialized entertainment of multiple episodes and multiple seasons out of these extreme sensations. Can you think of another example besides Walking Dead and, and Hammies that you're thinking of? Um, you know, I think first season of The Leftovers was chasing that to a degree yeah. in a very different, it, it was different, but in the same way that it was holding your head down in something unpleasant and forcing you to to reckon with it and sit with it. I think a more positive, uh, it, to my mind, to my critical mind version of that would have been a show like Rectify and Sundance, which had a very, very slow-paced, very atmospheric, vibey melancholy that I, you recognize from independent cinema um, and then stretch that yeah, out for a number the, of seasons. Uh, uh, Gamora would be another one, the, the sure. Netflix, had, you know. Now, or the Sundance version of it, yeah. To the, again, to the credit of Elizabeth Moss and Bruce Miller and the other producers involved in the show, they are aware of the fact that TV, I mean, no one wants to think this. They all want to think that we're working in this advanced art form, but there are certain things that make sense for an art form that goes on and on and on, and that's to live with you in your home. And one of them is escapism. Escapism exists in television for a reason, because you have to spend time with it. People want, you, you, you generally have to create a world that people want to spend time in. Or, you know, there's always the infamous joke about the network note being like, can my hero have a win here? Yeah, right. There's a reason they make that note. So why do you to, think to the version the, of dystopia that we see in so many well, other places doesn't work here? Well, well I, just to finish that other thought, that that's why in the first season, the thing that we criticized it for, the pop songs at the end, the yeah. you go girl moments, they were there for a reason to leaven this misery, you know, and to lighten it to some degree. They tried I found that those with the Fenway Park sequence. They're playing Kate Bush during this sequence in Fenway Park, and it's discordant. 
you know, and, and, and again, I think they did things correctly. This show sustains a look maintained that was created by Reed Morano in the first season. It's very well directed this episode. Um, it, it changes the status quo in a way that you want a second season to do. Um, it, it hits its marks. You know, that's the thing I keep coming back to, but I, I, I can't, I can't do it. You know, and, and maybe that makes me a, a bad fan or a weak viewer or something. Um, I'm trying to think of what the darkest thing is that either of us watch right now. That goes, that, that sustains? I mean... That we're just like, yeah, routinely, like, I want to get back into this. I mean, the terror is pretty, like, I'm, I'm, I'm with yeah. the terror and that's pretty... But that's, that's limited, right? It's not going to be... It's limited, but it's also, it's got a certain... I mean, I think the fact that it's set in the past has something to do with it. I think that um, it's still is trying to maintain a certain um it's like a it's like a a drawing room drama you know what i mean like yep. there's a lot of guys sitting in in captain's quarters being like should we go forward or should we go back <laughs> i love it yeah but like and they're going snow blind and yeah. like running out of food and stuff like that but it's still that part is fascinating yeah and there's a certain mechanics to it i found that the endowed sequences in, in handmaids are so excruciating to yep. watch partially because I don't know necessarily, and I'm sure that down the line, maybe there's more Lydia stuff to come. Maybe there's more like... Yeah, they're going to do these things. But watching it, just sitting there and watching it and watching this like long drawn out five minute sequence that ends with Anne Dowd handcuffing a woman's hand to a stove is like, I just, I'm like, I don't... I, I don't, I can't, I don't have that in me. Yeah, and I, and, and I think also context matters. I mean, I think the show got a lot of attention and rightly so for its dystopic, its dystopic vision at this particular yes. dystopic moment in yes. our society. But the flashbacks in this episode, for example, that dealt with something that is extremely real and well-observed, this, this tension that all parents feel, but particularly working mothers feel between being the responsible parent and being responsible to themselves and to mm-hmm. their job, um, and then how that would be spun in an increasingly theocratic society. I thought that was well observed, but we live in this, we can't pretend that we don't live in this world right now. And much like with some news or, or, or political blogs or whatever, I, I can't, mm-hmm. my, my, my meter is filled up on that right now. And no matter how well you've done this, my appetite has changed at the moment. And that, but that's, that's a personal thing. There, there are many people who have, who seem, you know, not who seem, there are many people who enjoy this show and can ride with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It would be weird if it trans, if it changed its tone dramatically. But the other thing to say is unlike Walking Dead, this show seems to be headed towards some revolutionary, um, revolutionary type yeah well and, and then i setting. think that that is actually the future for the show if it, i don't know how many seasons and, and james actually wondered about this as well which is just like how much longer can you mm-hmm. sustain something like this but the more that this show takes place out of the red capes and bonnets mm-hmm. i think probably is what augurs for its longevity i agree yeah. i think it, yeah it's it's funny that we're, we both seem augurs negative well about this longevity. but a season three which pairs those aforementioned feminist pop songs with Elizabeth Moss literally throwing bombs and tearing down this world, that is a different show. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's the kind of show you only earn if you do this. But I, I mean, I gotta, be, I gotta be honest, the microphone, I would rather watch that show. Uh, all right. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Uh, and we will be back with Andy's interview with the band Churches. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Thomas's English Muffins. Sometimes there's a podcast, and sometimes there's a muffin. Sometimes. And those two entities meet in a figurative wood, like a wooded 
meadow. Like maybe a meadow. We meet in the meadow. So no trees. No trees. Okay, I'm with you. And you recognize one another. That's what true love is, is recognizing your partner in another. In a meadow. And I thought I had that the day I met you no. in 1996, but I was wrong. No. Because there's only found one, out. one true love in your life. I, I'm a married man who deeply loves Thomas's English muffins. Thomas's is the only breakfast brand that delivers a one-of-a-kind eating experience with its original Nooks and Crannies English muffin. And there is nothing quite like the Nooks and Crannies texture, perfectly toasted to give you irresistibly crispy edges with a soft, warm center. Take it from a true fan, a true love. Take it from the true fan. The secret to revealing the perfect nooks and crannies goodness every time is to gently pull your Thomas's English muffin halves apart. You can use a fork to split them. Do not use a knife. Come on, son. You can just lightly toast each half and then top them right away with butter. Watch how the butter melts and pools inside the amazing little nooks and crannies spaces. It is a delicious burst of flavor in every warm, toasty, buttery bite. If you haven't had them already, you better be lost in the woods, free of love. I thought it was a meadow. And without a podcast to listen to, because if you're listening to this podcast, you should be basically sitting on a throne of muffins. I want you not to be able to hear Chris's voice right now because you are crunching on the perfectly toasted edges. But that's the thing is it's soft in the middle, so maybe they're in the soft center. Who knows? Great call. If you haven't had them already, you have to toast and butter some Thomas's Nooks and Crannies English muffins. They are truly like no other. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Teams. Support for today's show comes from Microsoft Teams. Microsoft Teams is your hub for teamwork in Office 365 with so much to look after. Wouldn't it be great if there was just one place to look? Teams is that single workspace where you can work, share, and connect with the people in your work life. Teams brings together your chats, meetings, files, and apps all in one place and take teamwork where you work with apps for mobile and desktop. So whether you're sprinting towards a deadline or sharing your next big idea, Teams can help you and your team achieve even more. Microsoft Teams and Office 365. Visit office.com teams to learn more. And we're back. Um, about to go into a conversation I had with the members of one of my favorite bands, Churches. That's Churches with a V. These guys are incredibly kind, friendly, fun to talk to, and generous. They are the people responsible for that music you just heard, uh, music they composed for the Andy Greenwald podcast, which I know is Chris Ryan's favorite podcast after the five that he also does for the Ringer Podcast Network. It was great to talk to them again. We haven't spoken since Lauren was on the podcast um, back in the Grantland days. They are about to release their third album, Love is Dead, out May 25th on Glass Note Records. It represents kind of a departure for the band. It is still um, gloriously heady synth pop, but this is on a much, much larger scale. They worked with super producer Greg Kirsten. They co-wrote with him. The songs um, are not shy about their hooks or their ambition. Um, but because these three are from Glasgow, they can't help but being um, very modest and very fun and friendly to talk to. So let's get into it. This is my conversation recorded uh, a week or two ago with the three members of churches, Lauren, Martin, and Ian. Ian. 
this is choose your own adventure. Right? This is whatever. <laughs> this is America. This is the Ringer's number one podcast about Louisiana politics. <laughs> this no, is. No, so I, I hope you've done. Facts. You've done your reading, or at well, least your. You I took watched a note. Trevor Noah having done his reading. That's how we all learn. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Trevor Noah and John Oliver have done the reading, yeah. and it, like, they're the kids that came to class having done the reading. I'm like, crap! I need to go do it. But what if they didn't? What if we just? I, I think they could really con us if they wanted to use their powers for evil. To be fair, I would probably, you know, any, anything either of those guys say, I just instantly believe it. That's what I'm saying. Right? They do yeah. seem, and I, like, I do Seems wonder, healthy. I'm like, Trevor Noah, he's got <laughs> a lot of shows democracy. in a week. How can he have, does he have time to have read all these books? I think he does because he seems really, really smart. I think that's. And I'm like, he could probably read like the entire works of Tolkien in about two hours. This is dangerous. <laughs> this is a dangerous way of it thinking. It is, isn't it? That's how yeah. it starts. I think only Ian surviving <laughs> the apocalypse. I was like, oh, Trev. If, if, if you Trev don't already know, I assume we started. We, we, I am so happy yeah, to be joined so. by Lauren, Ian, and Martin from the wonderful band Church's new album, Love is Dead, out May 25th. I have no idea when we're going to be posting this podcast, so let's just talk generally about time and space okay. and history. So that could, could have been made. in the past. That could have all been in the past. Yeah, yeah Trevor Came Noah two years ago could have already led the revolution <laughs> right. against his ignorant viewers. So. Um, I'd be laughing at all of you. We <laughs> have many things to talk about. I'm so happy to have you guys here. Um, but right before we started recording, Lauren said that you guys met Dennis Rodman. And I feel like since he's met playing a pivotal a role in geopolitical action. <laughs> Indeed. Well, met is a strong word. We stood near in a room. Um, and I don't know, like, I feel like my, like, the, there's like kind of a banned code of ethics or something for how you deal with people in a backstage type area. And uh, it was at the basketball and we were in the bar bit. So do back. it to others as you would want. Yes. And in that moment, that like, right? I was like, I don't want to bother him. But my dad was a huge, huge basketball fan in the yeah. 90s. So I remember, like, him... Taping, taping games at like four in the morning and getting up in the middle of the night to watch them. So I have a really bizarre knowledge of that era of yeah. American basketball. So I was like, oh, like my dad would be so excited by this. I have to like do something, but I don't want to bother him. So we just creepily took a selfie with him far away. In the back. I don't want to do it so close to him because that's disrespectful as well. And I don't want to take a photo of someone because that feels disrespectful. I think there's being so too polite. Yeah, he's kind of like further down near a buffet, and we're like. Could you imagine my surprise when Lauren is like, yeah, "Yes, oh my God, that's Dennis Rodman," and I'm like, "Then I feel like." Did she start rattling off rebounding statistics as well, AKA the Worm, known for his time with the Bad Boys of the Detroit and Pistons? I guess you know some of the political choices in recent times have led to differences between myself and Dennis. So it's like probably best that we don't get into that right now when everyone's just trying to be at the ball game, you know? Let me circle back to that because you guys mentioned the code of conduct backstage, and again, mm. um, I have. I actually have prepared questions, but this seems right. <laughs> okay. um, backstage is generally, as an interloper backstage, as I have been lucky enough to be many times, <laughs> is generally awful, even from people who are friendly, because I am paralyzed by the same thing, Lauren, that you're speaking of, which is I'm not supposed to be here. Those beers aren't for me. Those are their real <laughs> friends. That's their mom or anything. So I don't know how to behave. Yeah. But there's this ritual where everyone is led back and then led mm -hmm. out. Um, you're in it. You, it's your backstage now. Mm -hmm. So how do you approach these interactions? I think if it's if we're are you talking about when we're actually in our own backstage or when we're in other people's backstages? Well, that's a great way to make my question two questions. I think if somebody <laughs> were to come into our backstage, I would yeah. want them to act in such a way that they felt relaxed. Okay. And they were at home, and they and they could grab a beer if they fancied it. Yeah. Or they could so eat some nice. snacks. Some people definitely <laughs> take that too far, though. They do, they do. There is, yeah. a, is a fine line, but I think that if you did that in somebody else's backstage, it would also make people feel relaxed. Yeah. Whereas if you're like, oh, I don't want to, you know, is that okay if I? It's like, mm -hmm. oh, well, and I guess I <laughs> don't know. Can we say that? I no. Oh, yeah, say it louder. Sure. That it's Fuck like off. a. 
<laughs> like I don't know. I guess it's kind of weird because you can go in and kind of feel what the culture of a band is from their backstage and stuff. Very and true. we have mm. a very smart, wise tour manager who knows that if there's some grip and grinning to mm. be done, you create a tier where there's one yes. escape room for the band. Mm. Well, oh. a room to escape into, not an don't escape room. Oh, I thought you were all playing an escape, <laughs> yeah. elaborate escape room and after every show. And then there's the main area, so she'll kind of <clears throat> bundle in the folk that, and then you know, if it's people that you kind of sort of know but you don't really know that much, there's always a, a get out clause just people in case. Aren't supposed to know this stuff. This is they listen to this podcast to find out. (laughs) Um, But you guys have been performing live enough now that it must be regimented because I imagine at the beginning of your careers in this band or previous bands, you give your all on stage. The last thing you want to do is Mm. be in a receiving line like you're just at somebody's bat mitzvah or something, you know, because then you have to stand there and you're sweaty or whatever and you have to say, oh, this is so-and-so from so-and-so and and you pretend you know them and et cetera, et cetera. We try and do before the show if possible for actually legitimate reasons that um, I had a vocal coach who told me that if you talk lots after the show that's when you really screw your voice up mm. because you're supposed to do the warm downs and mm. then then you're kind of fine it's also a great excuse but, I was yeah. going to say that's so yeah. absolutely a lie but I love our, it like, God level tour manager is like she's like oh I'm so sorry like Lauren has to go on voice rest after the show and then they're like I don't know I saw her shouting at the TV in the bus I don't think that she's on voice rest she's yelling at like yeah, massive slice of pizza and a beer just great for your voice respecting the instrument drinking queso and like sculling a beer. I don't know what yeah. you're talking about. <laughs> at least you don't get caught in the karaoke bar at five in the morning. Oh, oh yeah. Where was that? Where was that? I think was it was that? Sam Smith. Oh, was, did he get caught? And it was like, oh. it, it, oh, no, I don't know. I think that he like tweeted out that he was sick and he couldn't come out and meet all the fans. Oh, and then yeah. like sick of being bored by them, more like. Maybe he had a second win. That's maybe. true. And I understand maybe. like there's like you know like at the end of the day I'm like people are people. You know, like sometimes, like maybe someone's had a terrible day. Maybe they got dumped. Maybe their uncle died. Maybe they don't like they're not in the emotional space to do that right now. But you can't really say that. So maybe it was like I'm not well, and then he went to get absolutely mad with it in the karaoke. <laughs> but why can't you say that? Surely you can say that. I've had a really well, tough day. Really it's a long list of excuses that I've, you know? I've used up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, can't do true. the uncle thing the again. The, the latest is that your vocal coach <laughs> right, told well, you well, that this yeah. he did. He did. But, but there's one. there's a disadvantage I think almost to being a friendly band because mm. at a certain point people are going to take advantage of that. And if you had like yeah. been thought about this and said well we're going to reach a certain level and play to this many fans around the world so from the beginning we're just going to be raging pricks (laughs) then we'll have all this free time to eat pizza and whatever yeah we'll also have all this free time to have like another job well and I think it's a balance I feel like it's an exchange of respect that you should be thoughtful and respectful to people but then vice versa and we're lucky that m- most of our fans are like really cool and they're really respectful and really thoughtful about that kind of stuff but Mm. um you know occasionally like once I, I was here, actually, we played at the shrine and I was really sick. Like it was a proper like push it, mm. push the voice out thing. And I sat <clears> in a drip in the hotel room and I got like steroid injections in my butt and stuff. <laughs> and then like after the, the glamorous show, life. Yeah. So after the show, I was like, oh, my God, I need to go sit down. I'm so dizzy. I had to keep crouching down during the show. It was bad. And then I was going in the bus and then I heard somebody uh, like when I was like, sorry, can I guys have a good night? And I went in and then somebody like shouted at me. They were like, oh, you forgot where you come from. You're, you're talk terrible to your fans. And I was like, I, I was sick before the Don't show. Don't call her on like, that. And I'm wow. just, I was like, oh man, sometimes you're like, you're never going to yeah. please everybody, you know? And in that moment, I was like, well, if I do this now, there's like, hundred people here which is great yeah. but then if I do that that means there's no show in Arizona tomorrow mm. and that's not cool and just so. escape to the sweet release of a private steroid shot again just yeah. to like, like darken yeah. the generally we have very very nice fans I think yeah. I have a theory that that, 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 that bands fans are kind of reflected in how, how, how they are how they conduct themselves mm-hmm. and stuff like that I mean you do get lots of really famous people who are assholes and very successful and have fans but mm. I wonder if 
their fans are also assholes. I think that it's a chicken and egg, once I you guess, get to know. a certain size, I think it's unrealistic to expect everyone that likes your music to be just like you. Yeah, that you would go. Oh, like yeah. your core, your core the fan core, base. Yeah. Often, you see that artists' core fan base do hold the same, at least the same yeah. kind of ballpark well, values as the artist does. Yeah, if you think cool. about how you yeah. like, I think about like. Katy Perry or whatever I'm like well there's things that she talks about and the way that she conducts herself and it's all kind of about kindness and inclusivity and like all those mm. things and I'm like I just do think that does a trickle down effect to the <clears> fan base <throat> and you're kind of setting the tone hey, it's kind of like being in a club or something I'm like you're setting the tone for the fan club because you're I think that's president right. of your mm. own but, fan club but I also think she seems big headed <laughs> but, but you also, I also think that the idea of like putting on the act of being a rock and roll monster or something mm. Mm. The fandom for that has waned, I think, too, because now being a fan of a band or an artist involves almost a 24-7 fandom. So you have to see. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the mask has to drop at some point yeah. now. And yeah. I think that before, maybe if you liked a band that was famously rude or something, yeah. it's like you just turn on their show for the hour you're at their show and then you move on to the rest of your life. Now, mm-hmm. with you guys, people are following you, um, hopefully not physically, but uh, <laughs> not, on... Not all the time. Not all the time, <laughs> but, but, you know, on, on various socials and mm-hmm. et cetera. So Plus, that's funny when, yeah, I try not go on the internet that much. I think there's a lot of good things on the internet a lot of bad things great attitude I agree with that except for podcasts you should always go I've got this little app on my phone that tracks the amount of time you're on your phone and you can exempt certain apps so I've exempted like music and podcasts and uh, like FaceTime because I use it to speak to my mother and things like that but the rest of it it's kind of crazy when you clock up how much you're on that stuff and then just weird things like sometimes like somebody tagged me in a picture of me having lunch and I was like mm. oh that's not good and then that's weird and I'm like actually if that's going to happen I don't need to know that that's happening no yeah. I need to just like not and then be eating my attitude. eggs you know you get yeah. all sorts of weird ones like that mm. I remember once somebody tagged me across an arena <laughs> as at a 1975 <laughs> show and someone had managed to pick me out from the other side of Madison Square Garden, oh. and zoom in on me, and then I was like checking my phone, <laughs> feeling really like freaked out by the fact that someone had across. Oh, you the noticed while, so you you were while you were there, yeah. so it was just like feeling the I'm red like, dot on your head, right? like a like a born movie. God, that's well, well, and it's all it could that, be like, than that. I think one day we hmm. came into this like last year we were writing, and I came in, and you were like, "Oh, did you go to the did you go to the theater last night?" And I was like, "Yeah, how do you?" No. Like, how did you know it was last night and then you were like well people tagged us and there's like a picture of me and my mate like an intermission being like blah 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 and eating <laughs> sweeties <laughs> <laughs> had you apologized that you couldn't do something with them and then they had found out uh, about no, it no I think yeah. it was the it was the my um, vocal coach says I need to rest it was the Oscar Isaacs <laughs> version of uh, was it Othello uh, oh, that's a good. Is it not Hamlet? Hamlet, Hamlet. Mm. It was the Oscar Isaac's version of Hamlet, and the tickets were all gone. And I felt bad because I had ones mm. and you didn't. Mm. So, well, let's not have any more band ruptures now yeah, so over Shakespeare. Yeah, what a very hierarchy. Yeah, no, it's such a classy band. <laughs> um, you actually, this alluded to the fact that you were recording in this country, and I mm. believe are, are you all mostly living here now? Is that correct? Or you were during the recording? We yeah, for the, yeah. Time, for the time, for the time being. Not doing that just to like echo, geotag you for future uh, stalking. Okay. What I mean is, you <laughs> have more or less moved to this country at a really special time in yeah. this country's history. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great timing, guys. Well, first of all, we were like, gotta get away from this Brexit nonsense, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and then we came here and we're like, ah! that's, that's we Brexited. Like, yeah. Literally, we um, it's just as bad in the UK. Yeah. So I was like, in my mind, geographically, mm. being in New York is, makes a lot of sense mm. for, for work right now. Right. Because it's halfway to here or to London. Mm-hmm. And um, these two guys were already there and we, we we'd, like imported her humble little studio from, from one industrial estate. <laughs> 
in Glasgow to another industrial estate <laughs> in like Bushwick, and uh, I, was, I just I thought I still love it. Yeah, because it's so new. Do I love the winter? No. Do I love that it's yeah. snowing in April? It snowed today, right? Yeah. I definitely don't love that, but there is something special when it's so fresh, like living there. Does it? Um, I mean, obviously, you've all spent a lot of time in New York prior to recording the record there, recording the record in this country, but does it change the tenor of the recording just being in a different place? Because I, I think I remember when we first spoke, Lauren, that you talked about recording. Was this equipment in was it in like in your flat or in your home initially? It's, yeah, it was, we had a studio was, yeah. in Glasgow. It's kind of a basement flat. Right. Uh, not, not, none of us have ever actually lived there, but it is uh, like one Dave, of our friends. Yeah. Yeah. Just in case you could. Dave, Dave <laughs> yeah. was our uh, our main our backline tech. Uh, yeah. And also a composer had shared the apartment with mm-hmm. Ian, and they'd had a studio each. And then David had a bedroom in the corner. And then on the second record, there was too much gear, so poor, poor Dave moved out. So, what does it mean for churches to make an American record or to be an American? Band? I think it probably does make a difference in lots of small ways. Mm. Um, I think that still, wherever we are in the world, I think when it's just the three of us, the, the kind of core, right? In fact, you know, the, the dynamic is kind of unchanged. I think it feels like. That's us, that's what we do in a room. Regardless of where we are, it's going to come out sounding like us. Oh. But I'm pretty sure that it's different in lots of different ways. I mean, yeah. we, we worked with Greg out here, Greg Kirsten right. out here in L.A., and that obviously had a massive um, effect on, on the way that the music turned out because it was like having another member of the band, like an amazing keyboard player in the band, and he fitted so well into our uh, existing dynamic. Mm. Yeah, well, I want to talk about that <clears throat> dynamic, which is obviously different on this record. Greg mm. Kirsten, um, who has produced many, many terrific bands and he's collaborated. He's done a couple of records. He's done all right yeah, for himself. Yeah. He's yeah. fine. Yeah. He's right. Don't shed any tears for I him. I think he's going to be all right. Like yeah. He has yeah. a place to live other than the studio, is right. what you're saying. Uh, actually, uh, he does live in his basement. He does mostly. <laughs> yeah. There it is. It's in his basement. Um, yeah. uh, I was just thinking, like, on that, we were. I think we were quite protective of still making a British-sounding record. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know that I certainly was in the back of my mind and I thought about it a lot was that I didn't really want to do that mm. thing you know British band moves to the USA makes overblown you like, just, rock you, record you didn't know? want to make your rattle and hum right <laughs> I, I mean, I you said that. it, but I didn't. <laughs> no, you guys love all bands equally and are respectful of everyone. Right. Right? It's a great, it's a great documentary. It's a, it's a really it's, film. It is. <laughs> I mean, it's overblown for sure. So when, but it made a big impact on me. Yeah. It did. Not so much on me. It has on people. Yes, it hasn't had an impact on people mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, who are alive in the world. Sure, <laughs> but the Greg thing—it mm. was a really easy decision to work with him because everything that he does is so UK centric. Like. It was, Adele, Lily Allen. Oh, he also wrote the best Oasis song in right. 20 years Liam with Gallagher's. the Liam Gallagher single. Oh, right. Right. Sorry, I thought you never wrote it's, an Oasis song. I mean, okay. do you want to know something funny about that? I'd he, love to know something. He, everything funny about that. Begin now, please. So he, <laughs> he played that song to us before it came out and before this big resurgence with Liam. Yeah. And uh, uh, when the song was over, I just turned around to him and I was like, you don't know what you've done. <laughs> it's all coming back now. He unleashed. You have no idea no. what you've just Kraken done. From 5,000 miles away. Yeah. I really hope that Noel Gallagher hears your comment. Oh, no, Noel Gallagher I, me too. Love it. That would be my dream. Yeah. I mean, if I could. I mean, Incidentally, I went to see Liam Gallagher after the fact at uh, Terminal 5. <laughs> 
uh, and really enjoyed it. So you worked with him. Um, you, you co-wrote on some songs. You produced the record. When I first heard you were doing that, I was very interested <clears> because in my mind, my completely unformed, don't actually understand how songwriting works mind, <laughs> I assumed that people would work with someone like Greg to, ba- to like add hooks, whereas mm. your songs, there are, sometimes there are too many hooks. Like That's <laughs> never been a problem. Uh, for churches. I, some of those songs, especially on the first record, there's just, I, I think you're done, and then there's more, and you've hit, then there's the third chorus hiding behind the other two in the bushes somewhere, yeah. and it jumps out and surprises you. <laughs> Stealth so, chorus. So when I, yes, and so I finally, when I listened to the new record, what he seems to have done, and you can explain the reality behind this, he seems to have slowed, like stripped some things away, and it's, it's, I don't want to say pure, but there is a swagger in some of these songs where there aren't three choruses. There's just one mm-hmm. chorus. Really good one. One really good one. And wait for it. And here it is. And it stands with the strength of its own conviction. Mm-hmm. And so you fall into that. And it's a different vibe, but it's interesting. When I think of someone co-writing or producing, I think of someone adding, but it mm-hmm. sounded almost as if he stripped away. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the cool things about what Greg does is, and, and there was this was part of why it worked as a dynamic, was that he doesn't really get his hands dirty with that. Well, it certainly with us. I think he knew that we were is particularly strong in that area mm-hmm. and especially like kind of top lining or like spontaneous melody is mm-hmm. something that I take really seriously and it's like the, the cornerstone of what I can bring to the band and what and what how we collaborate is like that's the way it's been from from day one and he doesn't really get involved in that stuff no, until, really. until <clears throat> you hit a wall and that happens in the studio when mm-hmm. we hit a wall sometimes when we were on, we'd be on our own, and that would just be the end of the conversation, and we could move on to another song. But suddenly, there's Greg there mm-hmm. to say, "I see where you're going with this. How about you try this instead?" And that would just—it was like someone mm. unlocking a door, mm. and you'd be away off again. Yeah, but having someone that special, like in terms of his musical language and his understanding mm. of our band, was extremely exciting. Well, I wonder also if that dynamic between the three of you and him was slightly different because not only have you worked extensively just together and produced things yourself but one of my favorite things that your band does is when you do these covers that you've performed on various Hmm. um, you know radio programs or video things recently you have this cover of my favorite Beyonce song XO which is just how was that not the most massive song in the entire world I still don't understand why it isn't it's the most beautiful emotional song and you did it justice and Mm. found the little hidden parts of it that make it special I think but to do that, the cover you did of the Arctic Monkeys song, which I prefer to the original. Um, there's we a story rough, behind we that were one. Rough, rough, oh, really? Rough, rough. Rough. Yeah. Don't you mean absolutely blind drunk still from the still. day before? Yeah. Behind See, that beautiful video, was, you guys yeah, was like eight thirty in the morning when we recorded the... Yeah, it was like breakfast radio in the. You've seen too much Shakespeare the night before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it was just one of those like normally a really well behaved on tour, uh, but it was like production. the first like the first time we'd been on a festival in Australia, like that was touring festival, and yeah. there was like the frightened rabbit where there was other Scottish people, and like Martin had organised a little day out for us all in Sydney, and like it was really nice. We went on a little boat and then just got absolutely shit faced, and um, fast forward to like a karaoke bar at like two in the morning and then I remember Sam Smith's in there hiding yeah. from the photographers yeah. Yeah. And I still haven't finished like, the I definitely must the have been quite smashed because I really? know that like there was a, a, a kind of guy being really douchey in the bar to one of the other girls that was in the group and our manager went in to get him to stop because he's a good guy but then he definitely took it too far and then drunk me came back from the toilet and saw this fray developing and I was like no you go that way you go that way and then I'm like that's really unsafe I don't think I should have been doing that like getting in the middle of a tussle and being like in an Australian pub you get outside and you go up the stairs fast forward to like 8.30 in the morning where I'm like 
Uh, well, see, while you were doing that, right? Uh, Check this one out. After, I think, we'd gone out in Sydney Harbour and it was lovely. We must have started drinking about midday. Don't day drink. This and, is why. This is how And continued drinking to around... Ian and I left around one. It was about Because one. we decided that, oh my God, we haven't finished the arrangement for the Arctic Monkeys cover. And when I say haven't finished, I mean we were probably about halfway there. <laughs> and we're just sending it back and forward from our hotel rooms <clears throat> and communicating by text yeah. <laughs> and finished that whole arrangement from like 1am to 2am, passed out, not knowing what state it was in, rocks up to Triple J the next day, maybe, still drunk. And, and we could throw this up because I, you know, I have it up here and maybe <laughs> oh, the, no. the still they've chosen is telling. Because when I'm I watch it, there's no way, the but you distance. look a little bit like staring at the yeah, middle distance. The rabbit in the headlights. I, Can I, I get through this? I do maintain, I'm like, <laughs> had I left earlier, which would have been a smarter thing to have done, I'm like, you know, Something bad could have happened. That fight would have happened. Would, like, he's a, oh, I thought he you were nervous. To... I did notice the shaky hand. The shaky hand yeah. is definitely alcohol related. <laughs> yeah. And listen, we do like one of those, wow. like a campaign. And then we get like, I'm like, whoa, that was the we day really we got away with that, that one. But I, and here I, I am calling like it this Campbell. beautiful like wow. exploration. Yeah. I think it did add to the melancholy of my delivery. Yeah, that's what it is. You know? That's See, what real champions left, do. Then, like maybe because our manager <laughs> so used to be a bouncer and he doesn't take that kind of shit from yeah. people. Mm. And I'll say, oh no, he would have like had that guy in a half Nelson and he'd be in the clink. So it was probably good that I was there to ride mm. him on, right on his back, yeah, so like never ending story. Heroic on a number of levels here. <laughs> the, the reason I brought it up was to get that story which was oh, yes. worth it but also that y- y- I feel like a, a good producer's mentality will, would be to strip songs down and then piece them back together mm-hmm. again under you know various states of sobriety mm-hmm. but to talk, to talk to someone like Greg and have him there too mm-hmm. is that generally what the process is uh, you know, or maybe what, tell me otherwise you know one of the things that I think that Greg really brought to our uh, creative dynamic is that he knows when things are done like I don't think that w- we tend to like work into things way beyond the point where they're done in my opinion mm-hmm. like sometimes we yeah. we overwork things and i think um and maybe that's maybe that's why we've got like so many hooks and hooks after hooks and extra choruses that you know <laughs> and, and that's, that's like a signature of what we do and you know it almost comes from a place of anxiety though mm. like certainly on the first record it, the whole Which why have right. one chorus when you can have three is because <laughs> it was last chance saloon for all of us in a way right and we were making this record suddenly overnight uh, after pushing a rock up a hill uh, for many years, all of us, overnight, there was this attention on what we were doing. Mm. And when we were making that album, we were kind of aware of that. Yeah. And we'd written most of the songs, but we told mm. them to within an inch of their lives because it was kind of an all or nothing mm-hmm. moment for us in yeah. terms of being professional musicians. It felt like it. I mean, I don't know, you, you probably remember more clearly than I do, but I, there was a YouTube clip of you guys performing lies I think that mm-hmm. that suddenly oh, we, first yeah. ever show. we saw in New York and we we're like and I was like this is what many of us we were instant messaging like oh this is what I was waiting I was looking for this Aww. thank you yeah, like I, cool. I, I Thanks, put a Google man. I'd asked Jeeves 10 years ago or something and finally <laughs> my search result Jeeves. came back Jeeves this came is, back from the dead <laughs> <so> he <laughs> literally <laughs> carried it on a tray it took a long time but what when was that was that 2012 so that was 2012, yeah, 2012 and we um, Mark, we May? put that song <clears> on yeah. Uh, Lizzie from Miss Mister's blog, Neon Gold. Yeah. And on it was like a free download oh. on SoundCloud. Oh, blogs. And then it was oh, like yeah. a day. Oh, geez. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you outdid me with that one. <laughs> and it was like the night before, uh, and in 24 hours, it was 
the kind of attention that we didn't know was possible. And then we we had to like build up to that gig because yeah. suddenly there was all this, these people interested in our band. Yeah, trying to book the band, we couldn't play live. We um we'd never tried to play live. No. In fact, the the whole concept of our live show and how we would do it was was just pure pub theory. It was like. <laughs> Yeah. Us and talking about how we would make this super lean system where we would like Pub control. I love that. Like, Tell me more about all that. All these years of studying music technology <laughs> and uh, okay, but we would go to the pub and we're theaters. not in the pub all the time. It right? sounds like we're always in the pub. Then, right, but yeah, you know, not yeah. to sound like a, maybe you were pub adjacent. Sometimes, <laughs> right, there was a pub within. Well, it is Glasgow. There's the, like more, more pubs say. than there are people, pretty much. The, how we would get all these analog synthesizers and make them talk to each other using one laptop and and just see if we can make it work with three people and that that shows the very first like churches gig and some guy with a camera was just randomly, like randomly cool, right? shot this cool footage still. and we used it and we put the track under it and <laughs> we were away so this shouldn't work right on some level <laughs> yeah. so this is what i'm curious about because yeah. from the outside <clears throat> we see that video it, it all in hindsight it all worked quite well right mm. i mean you, you you met each other you you had the hooks you had the desire you put the song in the right place, people saw it, and it scaled. You know, it doesn't, mm. I imagine it doesn't seem totally unreasonable mm. on some level to the three of you from the inside of the machine. But <laughs> just from working together in this basement to, you know, recording the record in LA and playing increasingly bigger and bigger gigs and basically appearing to be ready for each level up of your career, yeah. if you'll allow it. From what the outside. that was? Well, okay, so tell me that. Is that... That was the whole, the whole first, like, three years of the band was just, like, this moving train. And and in hindsight, it must have looked super slick, but it was not slick <laughs> behind the behind the curtain. You know, it was like we it's were people. Yeah, it doesn't matter you. how many years or like going to uni and studying music or playing in bands. Or I toured this country five times in the Twilight Sad mm-hmm. in a van. Mm-hmm. Like that, none of that prepared me for the first eighteen months of this band, not in any way, because it was a whole other thing, mm. and. It, it, we were holding it together, yes, but was it difficult? Just. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> am I glad that we kept it together? Because mm. now we're as strong as you could ever be. Well, I can't believe we all, we're sharing a house right now, and yeah. like we're mates. I did but, the dishes earlier before we left, but right? I will not be doing them again later. <laughs> so why is this working? Just mates. It's <laughs> <Just laughs> <mix>. unbelievable. <laughs> you have to go there to come back. It's weird. The band you mentioned, Marty, mentioned Twilight Sad, and I'm mm. a huge fan of many bands from Glasgow. Ariogram, a great band oh. that I loved, and one thing that unites many of them is that while I love them and many of them had various levels of success, many of them sort of, I don't want to say stalled out, but in terms of like a national exposure in this country or Mm. even maybe even the ambition to be that big, is it fair to say that there's a a Glaswegian modesty or something that kept that from happening? Or is it more aggressively Mm. that you guys are willing to you want to get in, you're going to go tour this country, you're going to do the work, you're going to do the things that have to be done to make it happen. We worked hard in those bands for sure. Yeah, yeah I don't mean to, to apply anything other than that. No, but I wonder it if it's like ambition. a time and place thing, a genre thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. Because I guess I've never, I've never been in a band that even got to this country, so I'm like, please discuss, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah, that's know. a really difficult question <clears throat> to answer. I would agree with Ian. I, th- I know that James and Andy are both really ambitious and mm-hmm. really talented Like when it comes to the Twilight Sad. It's hard to say why it doesn't go beyond a certain point, you know? And those guys are still going, so who who knows? By yeah. the time this podcast comes out, they yeah, could they have make, a record all over the radio. And yeah, it's and I'll, and I'll, I'm making a record right but there, right? I do, yeah. They I'll, are. I'll big up it on a microphone. Right. I, I would sure. love these things to happen. But they think, yeah. but you, you're, you do hit on something because there is a, and I don't mean this of James and Andy, certainly not, but there is a particular attitude 
in Glasgow where if you show any kind of ambition that that is perceived negatively mm. if you do not disguise your melodies behind difficult time signatures and mm -hmm. complicated arrangements that, that that you are in some way less worthy than the band that's playing in like some daft time signature and with jaggy guitars everywhere that's like to me insecurity and fear is just throughout all of that stuff mm -hmm. and i can say that because I used to be that guy <laughs> who was very afraid, right. very <clears throat> over complex for, because t to me, to foreground melody in the way that we eventually learned to do was, mm -hmm. was a dangerous and risky thing to do. It was putting yourself all the it way is. out there and you could get, especially us in the formation that we were, criticized so deeply. Yeah. And I do agree with that 100%, but I'd also say that it just depends what you're trying to achieve. Like. One of my favourite records mm. is uh, is Loveless by My Bloody Valentine, mm -hmm. which is exactly what, what Martin says. It's like beautiful melodies drenched in feedback and mm -hmm. noise and swirling textures. Can't make out a single fucking word on the whole record, but it still speaks to me like no other music well, does. Well, maybe my, my problem then is that is that inherently I just assume that everyone that starts a band wants to be the biggest band in the world. Mm, right. And I'm like, any other mindset to me is somehow... <laughs> Unusual. That's how I feel about podcasting. Right? So I'm going to crush <laughs> them. Right? Just look, don't get me started on NPR, those guys. <laughs> um, but uh, it's interesting what you say about melody. Cause, so, Lauren, for you, one of the things that I've really loved about the band is I feel like your your lyrics and your singing style has opened up, and there's a, a confidence isn't the right word. Stop cheese after shows tonight. The, that's <laughs> why. First of all. Stop talking after the gig. And that's <laughs> right. Enough dairy. Um, but as much as the music has moved towards um, a, a bolder melody and, and more foregrounded melody. I feel like your lyrics have gotten equally bold. Uh, is that fair to say? And was that a struggle for you, uh, much as it was a struggle for Martin to stop putting, did you say jaggy guitars? You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it's kind of a natural development, I guess, just because I had never really done any singing training ever before this band. I hadn't, like these guys went to university and studied music and I'd never really done that. And I think it was a product of just singing night after night after night and then also getting to a point where I realised I didn't really know how to take care of my voice properly I didn't know what I should and shouldn't be doing and you know we kind of want to think of a live show as a kind of no excuses situation like as much as I would love to go out and get smashed in Sydney every night you can't really do that and then still do what you're supposed to be doing and well, I don't know I think it was the next day. well yes and <clears throat> I don't know I think it was I guess it was interesting to get to a point where I could think about it as an instrument mm -hmm. and I wanted to know enough about what what I could do with it so that you can tell the story that you want to tell and I think I kind of like the idea that like in some ways my voice is quite like saccharine and sweet but I like the idea that you take that kind of voice and you, the things that are coming out of your mouth are not things that you would necessarily hear on right. Top 40 Radio and mm. I don't know I always think sometimes I can listen to something and be like that person is a technically amazing singer but it, like they, they're not singing in that song for the song they're singing for themselves if mm -hmm. that makes sense and I guess I just wanted to know that I had enough stuff in my toolbox that I could sing in the way that the song needed and not sing so that I could mm. feel like I've really done it because that's what your shower is for later that's for the you know <laughs> right. when I'm in the kitchen that's when I'm going to take on the Bodyguard soundtrack while I'm making soup but, and stuff but, but you covered Beyonce and yeah. well we, tr we were like what is the, like, here's the category of Beyonce songs we could never cover because I could right. never sing them. I'm like, okay, I didn't sing that one as good as Beyonce, but I tried. No, but you found, <laughs> but, but I think it worked because you weren't yeah. 
singing Beyonce, you were singing the song, and you found something that spoke know. to your voice and the strength yeah. of your voice. It's a very focused vocal <clears throat> performance that really communicates mm. something different than the original track, which is mm. what a good well, cover does. And yeah. I feel like that's what I've tried to learn over the course of time. Like, I th- especially in the first record, I was just so like rabbit and headlights blown away, like out of my depth by a lot of stuff that was happening. I think I was like getting through a show was quite difficult. So getting through each song, I was like just like do it rote so you've done it. Whereas like I guess now because we're more comfortable with it. I kind of think it's about like communication and what do you want to say and I know there's some things my voice can do and some things my voice can't do but ultimately you should be trying to emote and trying to find something in those lyrics and express that and even with covers yeah like sit down and look at the lyrics unless I know them already which I did for that one and then be like well what <laughs> bits do you how do you make people feel like you're saying that to them or something And I should let you guys go I, you're on the uh, this is April. The record's coming out next month. Is this part of the um, roller coaster an exciting part for you? Is it fun? Not the press, because obviously this is great. I can tell from your <laughs> yeah, faces. But you know, you have these new songs. You have um, whatever swagger has been built up in the swagger bank from the last few years. <laughs> what are you ready to show people with version three? Well, there's mm-hmm. actually more anxiety. Than <laughs> That's what I'm to say. If I'm being honest, it's like this. There's a deep connection I'm feeling between um, Glasgow and Judaism as a whole. I'm really relating. <laughs> I think it's maybe why I've always liked the bands. The more times you say anxiety, the more I completely relate. And it's like, that's the truth of it. It's like, and now the, the more songs that we put out and and get out, it's going really well at radio and it's all that stuff and it's, we can see it. It's becoming real again. Mm. But it's, I can't tell you how weird it is to spend like a year in the wilderness. Well, Bushwick. Right? <laughs> you know, the Man wilderness. The and like Man not the be putting records out and watching the music business like evolve in front of your eyes. Yeah. It's, a, it's kind of a scary thing. So when you come back, the, all of the energy and lead up to that is one where you're going, wow, <clears> is, are we done? You know, yeah. like, and it's, that's an irrational thing on so many levels, but it's kind of how your brain just naturally goes and now we've, we're doing all this press and it's, it feels good and now I can get excited but up like, to that point I don't know Yeah, I feel like you see even with like giant pop records like nothing is like a surefire winner mm-hmm. and I feel like as much as you don't want to live inside that anxiety when you're trying to work and trying to make mm-hmm. the record and trying to write I think it's kind of important to remember that like you can't go around thinking that everything is everything is guaranteed because nothing is and the goalposts change all the time and if you make a record that you really like and it's a good record but it doesn't connect with people then that's what's going to happen mm. and hopefully that won't happen for us but I think it's just important to remember that like you know nothing is mm. nothing is certain you can't control life. that part yeah. you can just make no. the best the other thing is now even if you do there's it's like six month pivot now in, in the music business you see these huge rock records or the huge more of the huge pop records rather is what I mean I haven't seen a huge rock record in no, a while no that's like those are really scarce uh, but the massive pop records on paper that are failures that mm-hmm. the artist is just okay wipe next. that away next, next. Yeah. and they're back in a few months because you can turn things around with Amigos that, collab that, that kind that's of speed next. and then there's a you're only Amigos collaboration away from yeah, a huge like, fingers record, crossed guys you know? like and you know maybe <laughs> I, I think it's possible um, finally I have to say I, I owe you a huge thank you because you guys made music for my podcast oh, which is yeah. so kind and then you moved what did you do like, so no. good well, we're, it's, it's coming back and I, I love it I'm so honored that it exists it was so nice of you um, and I wanted to know just what I can do to pay you back. I wondered if you needed some sort of like a mediocre hot take on something cultural that I can just 
make a bespoke opinion for you guys? Like, how do I repay one of my favorite bands Wait, making an incredible open, track? You could open for us? What, just right? tell, wh Spoken word, I don't know. Motivation? Oh, like, I think that would be, be good. good at that. Motivation? Right? You yeah, think that's what like, we like take questions and be like, well, what's stressing you out? Like, why, what are you really, really worried <laughs> yeah, like about? And they're like, I'm really worried about it. And they could be really therapy. existential or they could be But then be wouldn't I be like, that's nice that you think that's a problem. Let me tell you about my problems. <laughs> <laughs> I thought do you, you thought maybe I could do like bespoke reviews of the people in the crowd. You know, I could say like, you've come in with this backstory of this but I don't buy that thing about your sister and Lauren Ian Martin thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me Love is Dead is out May 25th um, you guys are great I love the band I'm so happy you could come talk to me again thank so you thanks for having us yay Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the big homies at Thomas's English Muffins. Here's a breakfast I always get out of bed for. Thomas's original nooks and crannies English muffins. There's nothing quite like that irresistible nooks and crannies texture. Perfectly toasted, crispy edges with a soft, warm center. How the butter pools inside those nooks and crannies spaces is just amazing. It's a delicious burst of flavor in every warm and toasty, buttery bite. Mm. Thomas's nooks and crannies English muffins. They are truly like no other. 